the early days of my company when we were just a book publisher. And literally, they said the internet was built with O'Reilly books. Many of the great companies that the programmers learned about new technologies from our books. In some ways, we were an early practitioner of collective intelligence. We were finding out what hackers were doing and then capturing that knowledge. One of our, our slogans was create more value than you capture. That came about after quite a few internet billionaires had told us they'd started their company with nothing more than an O'Reilly book that taught them how to do some technique that uh, they turned with a bit of ingenuity into a, a company and a fortune. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. If you've heard any of the terms open source software, web 2.0, or government as a platform, you'll be familiar with today's guest, Tim O'Reilly, who has helped popularize these big ideas. Tim is the founder, CEO, and chairman of O'Reilly Media, the company that has been providing the picks and shovels of learning to the Silicon Valley gold rush for the past 35 years. The company's online learning and knowledge-on-demand platform, O'Reilly.com, is used by thousands of enterprises and millions of individuals worldwide, and has a long history of convening conversations that reshape the computer industry. Tim is also a partner at early-stage venture firm O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures and on the board of Code for America. He is the author of many technical books published by O'Reilly Media, and most recently, WFT, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. He's a visiting professor of practice at the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at University College London, headed by Mariana Mozzucato, mentioned more than once in this conversation, and is working on a new book about why we need to rethink antitrust in the era of internet scale platforms. In today's episode, which is the grand finale for this season, we explore the future of internet-enabled organizations and how to think about value creation and regulation of these tech companies. Listen on to find out what we can learn from the golden age of internet and how platforms like Google and Amazon have lost their ways over the years and are now breeding their own competition and what Tim thinks about government-funded innovations. As the software industry is becoming more at the heart of everything in society, we need to create systems that enable more value than they capture. What a great closing episode. Tim has really been a true source of inspiration since the very first seed of Vanderless was planted years ago. If you want to hang on a bit after Tim's final words, Simone and I will bring a brief wrap-up of the season and let you know the next plans for Boundaryless research activities. It's been quite a ride this season too, and we are so grateful both to our loyal listeners and every guest who are pushing the boundaries for the future of organizing. Now, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Tim O'Reilly. Hello, everyone. We are back with the final episode of our uh, second uh, series of the Boundless Conversations podcast. And today I'm here with my usual co-host, uh, Stina Heikila. Hello, hello. And uh, we have uh, more than a special guest for this last episode, a uh, true legend for many that uh, I'm sure are listening to this podcast at this moment. Surely my one of my greatest inspirations for the work we have been doing so far, Tim O'Reilly. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. Hello to all of you. Thank you so much, Tim. And uh, we're really looking forward to, to have this conversation with you. And uh, again, I want to thank you, Lisa Gensky, for, for the introduction, our mutual friend. We have so many things to ask you and to <laughs> have this conversation with you about. But uh, I would like to start, let's say, from looking into the work that you have been doing in the early days of the internet and the software uh, movement, uh, essentially, as you have been helping to socialize it and create communities of practice around that, and, and it was a, such an important work that you still do. What we are seeing, let's say, with software, it's to some extent a connection with the world uh, more widely, the world of uh, creating organizations. So uh, not just creating maybe products that uh, customers can interact with, but also now moving into 
uh, the finance world or moving into actually creating a mod modeling organizations and, and managing them. So my question would be if you can spend a word on the two aspects. So either software developers becoming to some extent architects and managers of organizations, and on the other side, managers that can increasingly do more, even bypassing sometimes software uh, software developers with uh, low code or no code environments. So how how are you uh, seeing this you know movement around software as we uh, meet these new challenges and these new opportunities? All right. Well, let me start by saying, in many ways, my entire career has been a reflection on William Gibson's uh, marvelous phrase. Uh, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And uh, for me, one of the interesting things about software for so long has been that it has been living in the future just a little bit ahead of other people. And so it gives us a taste of where the world is going. You know, so, for example, uh, back when uh, the Internet and open source software were first having their biggest impact, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, you know, I started recognizing and trying to talk about was that this was a new form of social organization, uh, open source software in particular, but also the internet architecture was also enabling a new sort form of social organization, new form of business organization. And we've seen this continued evolution over the last, you know, 20, 30 years as software has been uh, enabling at scale uh, uh, the coordination of society and uh, the thing that's really important to realize is that history does never go forward in a straight line. Uh, you know, so even though, you know, there's this great breakthrough of collective intelligence that we saw are, uh, you know, in this coordination of software developers over distance, we saw this great coordination in the power of data, you know, where, where the, the, the companies that, you know, dominated in what we call the, you know, the, the Web 2.0 era were companies that learned how to harness the intelligence of millions of users to give results, for example, for Google search or Amazon building its marketplace and helping you find the best products. But these things are stage. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you have multiple, you know, vectors of the future uh, mixing and, and pushing. And, and, of course, one of the big vectors that affects the idealistic uh, potential of self-organization is the you know the financial incentives to extract uh, you know value for a company, and I think that there's a real issue and a real danger that we have seen for tech as it's sort of here it has this incredible power uh, to bring people together, and instead it's been uh, abusing that power. And so we really have to reflect, and this is why I think your work is, is so important, because it's not just about how do you, you know, say, grow a marketplace? How do you grow a platform? It's also, how do you build one that's sustainable, uh, where you know, it's a virtuous circle for all of the participants? Uh, you know, whereas what we've started to see, you know, the future of the internet and the future of technology looks a lot more like the past of extractive businesses where some people get power and then begin to abuse it. And so, uh, you know, I, I think as software becomes, you know, more central to our society, we have to say, well, do we want to think about how it makes our society better or whether it just allows a different set of people to be winners in an unequal system? Right, Tim. And, uh, and what is the role that you envision in this process for uh, your company and companies similar to yours? But I would say, most of all, your own system, you know, uh, your, your, your media company. What, what is the role that you envision in approaching these new domains of uh, human knowledge that, to some extent, uh, connect with the heritage of the software movement? You said that, you know, basically open source pioneered a new system. So what is your work now in, in supporting this watershed moment? You know, if you think about the history of my company, and of course, uh, despite your generous introduction, uh, many people probably don't know who we are and what we did. Uh, as uh, science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson once said, history is a wave th uh, that moves through time slightly faster than we do. 
and uh, you know the, the wave in many ways uh, passes all of us by. Um, so I, I guess I think about uh, you know the early days of my company when we were just a book publisher, and you know literally they said the internet was built with O'Reilly books. You know many of the great companies that the, the, the programmers learned about new technologies. Uh, from our books. In some ways, we were an early practitioner of collective intelligence. We were finding out what hackers were doing and then ca- sort of capturing that knowledge. One of our, our uh, you know, our, our slogans was create more value than you capture. That came about after, you know, quite a few internet billionaires had told us they'd started their company with nothing more than an O'Reilly book that taught them how to do some technique that, uh, uh, you know, they turned with, with a bit of ingenuity into a, into a, a company and a fortune. And I, I, you know, now O'Reilly is uh, largely an online learning company. We still have the publishing business, but our, our, the O'Reilly platform uh, includes not just, uh, you know, tens of thousands of, of uh, books in digital form, but also uh, live training, a major component, uh, interactivity. So we're basically creating learning experiences to continue that. But for me, the thing that I'm personally most focused on is using our own company as a kind of a laboratory and a template for how do you build a sustainable platform? Because one of the things that's concerned me is that the companies that I took as kind of the models to aspire to in the early days of uh, of the internet, uh, in particular, Google and Amazon, you know, uh, have really, it seems to me, have lost their way. And let me be very specific about how they've done that. Uh, you know, the genius of Google, going back to its founding, was that it was uh, had developed algorithmic techniques for harnessing collective intelligence to make search better. And search was a way of allocating attention to uh, the best resources on any topic. You could ask any question and Google used hundreds of factors to say, this is your answer. And it was a triumph of collective intelligence. Again, there were others like Wikipedia, but Google was such a great example because not only had they built you know, one of the largest and, and most compelling examples of this kind of collective intelligence, they'd figured out how to build an economic system that did not dominated. It, it, it was a sidecar to it. The ad business, they said, we don't want to do ads. You know, Larry and Sergey had written this paper on advertising or this appendix in their original search paper on advertising and mixed motives. And with the pay-per-click advertising, which was clearly at the side, uh, you know, framing the, the organic search results, uh, they were able to say, okay, you here, we'll give you the answer for free, but sometimes there's commercial uh, you know, uh, offerings and you might want to see those too in addition. So they had really built this balanced marketplace uh, that was creating so much value. They were sending traffic. You know, again, they, in their IPO, Larry Page had talked about, uh, about an interview at the time. Our job is to have people come to us and we send them on as quickly as possible. So they were, they were a, a switchboard for the internet. So taking in all the intelligence of users, all the click streams of what people did, and then using it to distribute it to the right places. But now you fast forward, um, you know, uh, 20 years, uh, they start going, well, you know, we could do a better job of that instead, uh, ourselves instead. And they start doing what Microsoft had done in the PC era, which is to say, hey, there's a good... uh, um, uh, you know, website that has information about travel. Oh, we can do that. We'll have Google travel. In fact, they even took on Wikipedia. They didn't succeed, but, you know, oh, we'll have an encyclopedia of our own. Uh, we will, uh, and, and you see the gradual transformation between 2011 and maybe 2015, where uh, the, the organic search results uh, that were the product of collective intelligence are more and more replaced by Google's own uh you know, answers. Uh, now, again, they, they will tell themselves, well, we're also using collective intelligence to form those. But there's a lot of evidence that that there's a, there's a conflict between the self-interest of Google in saying, okay, we want to send people to our properties uh, rather than to the best properties. Uh, you also see that advertising becomes much more dominant. 
such, uh, and this is partly driven by the shift to mobile where there's less screen real estate and so on. But increasingly, you get to the point where the organic results that you used to see are a tiny part of Google. And most of what you see is basically uh, ads, which of course are, you know, we're going to show you the thing that people paid us to show you rather than the thing that we have found that might be free and might be the best. And so in some ways, this incredible optimism and this incredible breakthrough of collective intelligence became replaced by uh, kind of a self-interested justification of why it's actually better for the user if we at Google just give you the answer that we think is best. But then you start to see that that answer is is tainted by uh, the benefit to Google rather than the benefit to the user. Uh, you know, similarly, Amazon. When I first wrote about them as a as a you know, kind of paragon of of collective intelligence, uh, you know, back around you know two thousand two thousand one two thousand two, I was you, you know, their default search was like Google's. It was what is all of these signals tell us is the best product. And uh, in his recent book, uh, Amazon Unbound, Je- uh, uh, Brad Stone actually you know unpacks the debate uh, at Amazon about their uh, their ad business, which is now one of their fastest growing, most profitable parts of their business. And they literally recognized that they were going to start making choices that were not the best ones for the users. They were going to be making the choices. Uh, the, the money was just too good to pass up. And I think that that, uh, that sort of reflection on these two companies that I have admired so much has really shaped my thinking about what we want to do at O'Reilly. Because Yes, if you kind of create this flywheel where you give endless amounts of value to your users, and then once you get that flywheel going, you start to say, well, we're just going to harvest more and more of that value for ourselves. Uh, Eventually, the flywheel will slow down, you know, and you see this, for example, with Amazon, uh, I think, enabling Shopify as a competitor, because all of a sudden, you know, there's so much pay to play that, Amazon is a less valuable channel for merchants, or at least for many merchants. Uh, they may have enabled others, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, low-cost uh, vendors in, in, in Asia who, who, who dominate the marketplace now. But you know, so the, the, this, this all, there's always a lot of complexity to the story. But uh, anyway, I, I, I've thought a lot about that, and and so at O'Reilly, we're kind of we, we're trying to make trade-offs between growth and providing value to our suppliers, not just to our users. Because one of the things that if you if you think back on, on sites, uh, marketplaces like Google and Amazon, they really have two sets of customers, or maybe even more than two. They have the people who supply the information and the people who consume it. And so for Google, uh, the people who supplied the information were you know, millions of, of websites. And Google still supplies value to those websites if you're doing a search that's non-commercial. You know, if you search for some obscure, uh, you know, I, I use the example, uh, you know, the, the the British author Anthony Trollope. You search for him. There's no commercial interest, so it looks like the old Google. You get a bunch of or, uh, organic search results. Uh, but if it's a topic of commercial interest, you get the things that people have paid Google to show you. And and this is a, is a loss. Anyway, so the point I would make is that I'm trying to say there's a suppliers and Google is starving their supply side, i.e. the web of revenue, capturing it for themselves. And ultimately, that means that, you know, the, the web has become a less valuable, less dynamic place. The developers move on, you know, so it's short sighted. Uh, uh, Amazon. Uh, you know, competing with all of its vendors uh, in the marketplace, uh, giving them higher and higher fees. Uh, This causes them to go somewhere else, use use another uh, alternative channel, try to build up their own uh, web presence and use do e-commerce with a partner like Shopify. So at O'Reilly, we think a lot about that. We say, oh, we have a bunch of suppliers, we have a bunch of consumers, and we have to create value for both of them. And a lot of our innovations on the O'Reilly platform are actually supplier-driven, not consumer-driven. We, we, we do ask ourselves, yeah, would this be a good 
you know, feature for our consumers. But we also ask, is this a good feature for our suppliers? So when we, we came up with the idea of doing live training on the platform, it was because authors were making less money from books as the, as the book market became uh, less valuable. And we said, well, we have to come up with a new format that will, will drive lots of revenue that we can pass on to our author base. And so we were building uh, that product as much for our supply side as for our demand side. And, and, and that, I think, is one of the great opportunities in marketplaces, which is to coordinate both sides and to make it a win-win for both sides. Because if you've got that double flywheel going, it's a lot stronger than if you just have a user-centered flywheel. Tim, to some extent, I think your uh, overview, your reflection uh, connects with uh, what we are seeing, you know, the D2C, the so-called D2C revolution. Uh, you spoke about Shopify, for example, and that to some extent is the is the probably the most uh, significant company in this space as it has enabled tons of professionals to create their own shops and connect directly with their audiences. So I think to some extent the question that we are debating on the aggregators uh, are also being challenged by the evolution of the internet itself that is continuously shifting this power towards the small, you know, to some extent uh, in, in this uh, uh, moment. At, at least it seems like, like, like to me. I would, would say it is that the aggregators like Amazon and Google have failed to recognize something really important about what made them succeed in the first place. As they centralized their power, uh, they stopped being aggregators. And of course, all that supply uh, needs to go somewhere, you know? And so people who are, 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 are wanting to reach customers, they go, well, you know, Google siphons off so much or Amazon siphons off so much, we got to find another route to the market. And and so I, I think, you know, it, it, it you know, they're breeding their own competition. And, and, and it's because it's not because the internet is moving on. It's that they are pulling back from the thing that made them great. Right. I wanted to come back to this, what you said, not about to create more value than you capture. And maybe if you can double click a bit on this question of exactly of what value are we talking about? And so now we had this uh, discussion on to some extent, caring for your suppliers and, and catering to their needs as well as the other users. So, And I know that you had made this, this distinction between operational and financial economy. So I don't know if you could connect those ideas to, to what we were talking about so we, so we can uh, get your insights on that. Yeah, I think that there's a one of the reasons why I think the internet went wrong was it became uh, so easy to say, if we can grow, get lots of users, uh, the market will value us very highly. And, and that's a kind of financial betting. In fact, I just wrote a new piece about it, uh, which I published on uh, O'Reilly.com this morning uh, called uh, uh, Why Elon Musk is So Rich. You know, and, and it, it really has to do with this idea that I wrote about in my book, uh, WTF, uh, but I took it from a guy named um, uh, Goodman, who who wrote a book in the 70s called Super Money about the stock market. And, and it's really the idea that the, uh, the stock market is a way of borrowing from the future. You know, so when you buy a stock, you're buying a, a stream of its future earnings. And so, you know, you look at, uh, uh, you know, a, a simple ratio. I mean, there are much more complex ways to value companies, but the price earnings ratio is one. And you say, okay, uh, Apple is valued at 30, roughly 30 times its current earnings. That, that is, uh, you know, if, if Apple makes, you know, $10 billion this year, I'm just making round numbers that actually makes more than that, um, uh, you know, uh, then it would be valued at $300 billion. In fact, it's, it probably made 30 or $40 billion, so it's valued at a trillion dollars, you know, and change, right? So it's over 30 years of, of assuming that you'll continue that income stream. Well, how much do you think, at the moment of, of Elon Musk's peak wealth back in January, uh, how much do you think Tesla was valued for? It was it was 1,400 years worth of its earnings, right? And nobody reasonably thinks that Tesla is going to be around in 1,400 years. Nobody, even who, somebody who does the math can say, oh, yeah, Tesla is eventually going to become so large and so profitable that it will be that valuable. 
Uh, you know, so all it is is a betting economy that the stock is going to go up. And so this idea that you can have a company which makes no money in the operating economy, which Tesla didn't until 2020, uh, for the first time they made money, but the, but the money they made was about equivalent to the money made by a grocery store chain, about 2% of, of sales. Um, you know, so not something that's intrinsically super valuable. So it's all expectations. And then you look at companies like Uber, still not profitable. You look at company like Clubhouse, um, you know, valued by VCs at, you know, $4 billion uh, with no revenue, no profit, just a bunch of hype. And, and you start to ask yourself, well, what are they really betting on? Well, they're betting on maybe an acquisition. They're betting on maybe being able to go public. Maybe, uh, you know, uh, they can sell on this, this stock to someone else before the bubble pops. And so you, you realize that, that we're living in this financial economy where there are a lot of incentives to uh, basically pump up uh, you know, businesses with lots of users way ahead of, of any possible results in the operating economy. And we see this, again, bringing this back to O'Reilly. We have competitors who've, who've gone public uh, on promises of amazing user growth. They've spent basically everything they've taken in on marketing that, you know, to, to, sh to show what appears to be this flywheel. And then once they're public, go, well, this really isn't sustainable, <laughs> you know, and uh, they've gotten out. We're trying to build for the long term. We're trying to say, okay, what's a sustainable rate of growth that we can achieve, uh, you know, without, you know, just buying growth that that will 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 go away as soon as we stop pumping more money at it, you know. Th so there's a lot, I think, in this theory of marketplaces that th the internet is teaching us about what's wrong in our society because, of course. You know, what we're seeing in general is the problems of, uh, of you know, rogue inequality, you know, driven by this ability of, 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 of people to borrow from the future, to, uh, to get paid for expectations that may never be fulfilled, is endemic to our society. Uh, our, our society basically says if you can get to scale... Uh, you can make thing. You can make a lot of money, even if it makes things worse for other people. You know, we have marketplaces that favor their users by taking advantage of their suppliers. You know, uh, you know, Uber started out being really good for its drivers. That was the promise. This is going to be this opportunity for you. But over time, you know, they basically subsidized the, the users with low fares and the drivers had to bear the cost. Right. By the way, Tim, is it, isn't it uh, worse than since, you know, when I was reading your recent post and you were mentioning uh, that the approach, the, for example, the European uh, regulators has been so, you used this uh, word, you said it's blunt and the processes for assessing harms uh, most likely proceed more slowly than the harms themselves. And uh, in, a, in another passage of that post, you say the markets are ecosystems and they have hidden dependencies everywhere. So I'm thinking about of the inherent you know, difficulties for regulators to actually regulate that. And so I would be curious if in your work with, uh, for example, with Mariana Mazzucato recently, how do we move from regulating that for sure is something we need to do into uh, enabling the next wave, something that needs to emerge as an alternative? Yeah, well, first off, uh, there's a couple of things that I think about this, and, and I, I, all of my thinking is always sort of uh, it, it continuing to evolve. But the first thing is I believe that there's a real breakthrough in regulation that is demonstrated by the tech companies themselves. You know, it, it's funny because, uh, you know, you're, you know, talk to a typical Silicon Valley person and they're likely to, to lean libertarian. But if you watch what they do, not what they say, you know, these platforms are typically centrally managed economies. You know, they're centrally planned economies managed by algorithm. You know, Google, Facebook, Amazon, uh, you know, the app stores. You know, there's a central planner in charge. They're allocating attention. And there's a lot to actually understand there that I think... Uh, really useful for government and for economists. Because the thing that's interesting, if you think about, say, Soviet central planning, 
what they tried to manage was production. And what the central planners of the internet do is they manage consumption, not production. You know, uh, Google and Facebook and Amazon manage what we see and therefore what we consume and let the supply come to meet it. And that's actually a really interesting, uh, you know, opportunity to rethink how we manage our economy because we do have more capability to understand where the demand is. We also have the ability to shape demand. And that's something Mariana talks a lot about, the, the market shaping function of government. And, and I, I think, you know, when we think about regulation, we think a lot of times about hand slapping, uh, you know, people are doing something wrong. We want to, you know, uh, but there's a way that we, first of all, I think we could understand that our system of government is by definition, a regulatory system. You know, just, you know, I, I, one of the analogies I like to make is, uh, you know, between say the Facebook newsfeed and tax policy, you know, everybody says, Oh, don't, you know, don't mess with tax policy. The government shouldn't interfere. I go, it already interfered. That's a lot like saying, oh, oh, you know, don't don't mess with the, the, the newsfeed algorithm. It already exists. You know, so you're just your opportunity is to make it better. It's not to not have it. You know, so, you know, if you look in the U.S., which I know a lot better than Europe, you know, we have tax policy that favors home ownership. In Germany, you have tax policy that doesn't. You know, in the U.S., you have tax policy that favors big cars because we basically uh, don't tax, uh, you know, fossil fuels. In Europe, there's much higher gas taxes. We get smaller cars. You know, there's all through the economy, there are regulatory mechanisms that are not, you know, like a regulator passing small rules. They're, they're passing market shaping rules. What we see as we engage with the platforms of the internet, like Facebook, you know, what we don't want is for the government to be writing Facebook's algorithms. We want the government to say, we want to hold you to account for the outcomes of your algorithms. Like when you create, when you, when, when you create divisiveness, when you have triggered, you know, uh, massacres in Myanmar, when you have, uh, influenced, uh, the U S election, uh, through misinformation, these are outcomes that are undesirable. We expect you to regulate yourself. So these things don't happen. Similarly, when, you know, you look at some of the economic things I'm talking about with, with Amazon and Google, I think regulators should be saying, Hey, look, we, we desire as an outcome that there is uh, opportunity for the people who make things in our, our economy to earn a fair profit. Right now, our algorithm, our economic algorithms throughout most of the Western world say the best outcomes will come if you squeeze suppliers as much as possible to get costs as low as possible, the consumers will benefit. And, you know, that was a good theory, you know. But now that we see what it has produced, uh, giant companies with soulless products, cutting corners, making things that are cheap and disposable, you know, you go, was that really what we thought we meant when we said we want the economy to be more efficient? And when we elevated the value of economic efficiency, in quotes, um, over all other values? And again, that kind of brings me back to like the wonderful thing about technology that I, I saw in, in the golden age, I think, of the, of the earlier Internet is the ability to take more factors into account. You know, there's this wonderful quote from uh, Paul Cohen, who was the former DARPA program manager for AI and now professor of computer science at the uh, at, uh, University of Pittsburgh. Uh, but he, he said in a panel we were on, at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He said, the opportunity for AI is to help humans model and manage complex interacting systems. And so when we have an economy that's basically focused on optimizing for one thing above all else, or, you know, or a few small things, you know, they're really in, intertwined, you know, uh, economic efficiency, bigness, 
the extraction of value, the creation of of huge stock market fortunes, all all are, are, are kind of in. They are the outcomes of the economic algorithms we're, we're using. And so, when I think about regulation, I think about no. How do we set different objectives? Just like when Google, you know, originally said we want people to come to Google and go away satisfied. You know, one of their their fabulous, uh, you know, little algorithmic tweaks that I loved was was the concept of the long click versus the short click. You know, people come, they click on the first result and they go away and they come right back and they click on the second result. They go, oh, that means maybe the second result was better, you know, because they go away after that one. So that's a long click. And so, uh, you know, Google was saying, we're going to actually try to figure out what people really want. And now, of course, they're doing what everybody else does, which is say, what's the thing that makes us the most money? And, you know, if, if I had the choice of regulating, you know, of, of, of sort of what is the regular, regulatory outcome, it's not just remedial. It's not like we have a system where we're going to, you know, uh, you know, create all this stock market wealth and then we're going to tax it and give it back to other people. I go, how would we make a system that's more fair in the first place? Where people can earn, uh, you know, a, a, a living, uh, doing things that they love. Uh, what kind of t- what kind of algorithms would help to produce that? And you go, well, that's government interfering in the market. Well, government interferes in the market today. It just interferes in the wrong way. It says optimize for efficiency. It could be saying optimize for quality of life. How would we create incentives and rewards for that outcome? So a lot of it, my thinking about regulation is how do we build a system just like Google and Facebook and Amazon do that focuses on outcomes? So it's an opportunity for us to say, how does technology help us both to ask and to answer the question of what do we really want? That's a really fascinating conversation, Tim. And one thing that I was thinking about is, uh, don't you feel like uh, we need uh, something a bit more complex, more complex than just uh, forcing functions for the market? So something that is much more bottom-up, because sometimes I feel like uh, the approach to regulation is really industrial in a, in a way. If you if you don't go beyond that, if you don't uh, go into enabling constraints, so essentially what I, what I was referring before, the idea that you nurture the birth of the new, I think uh, we are in trouble. I think that's absolutely right. I think the thing that's very interesting there is, you know, to step back and think about the range of what government is expected to do. And I I think that, uh, you know, this is why I I like working with Mariana. Uh, You know, she has the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Uh, You know, her recognition is that government, one of the things that it does is it can help to shape innovation with big missions. You know, so you look at, at climate change, you know, yes, the market may eventually get there, and you can see the, 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 how the market happens. And you can even see the role of bubbles in that. You know, I mean, you know, I, I wrote in that piece, The End of Silicon Valley, as we know it, the one that you referred to earlier, uh, you know, by, by saying there's going to be more climate billionaires in the next couple of decades than there will be in, you know, social media or traditional areas of Silicon Valley focus. And quite frankly, that's the result of government intervention. You know, people like to make fun of the government as a as a. Uh, they government shouldn't be an investor. They made massive loans to Tesla. They kickstarted Tesla, which became the first superstar of the energy economy and is going then to kickstart everybody else going, how do we get as rich as Elon? I go, that's, that was actually, you can trace that right back to the government. And yet all everybody talks about is their failed uh, investment. You know, it's as if uh, you looked at, at uh, a venture capitalist who, who, you know, flamed out uh, 10 times in the dot-com bust, but they also invested in Amazon. And all, you wouldn't talk about Amazon, you just talk about their failures. You go, why would you do that? And it, it's politically motivated. I think government has done a, a pretty darn good job. You know, government funded all the research that, that laid the way for those mRNA vaccines. Government was also the, the customer that paid for those mRNA vaccines to be brought so quickly to market. You know, so most of that 
of so many innovations are 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 driven by you know mission driven public policy you know space uh, you know, elon's other you know big win you know again you know who's his customer well governments uh yes private companies starting to be but you know government kickstarted that you know free market in, in uh, competition uh, you know and i, I think that's Government sort of taking an entire market to itself, absolutely wrong. Government being uh, a funder and a customer uh, and a regulator, we can get so much better at. So really, Tim, uh, maybe the last point that I know Stina wanted to explore on some particular aspects, but uh, I want to underline for our listeners really this uh, uh, question that emerged from this conversation that uh, we're really looking into Uh, seeing our institutions, uh, to some extent, implement this regulation that are needed, do the investments, as you are talking about, and also, uh, as once you wrote, talking about uh, uh, Government 2.0, you said, build a simple system and let it evolve. So also this idea that they can't do much, they can't do everything, and and they need to seek cooperation with citizens, with the dynamics that uh, you have been studying and and writing about for so long. Thanks very much for this reflection. Stina, I, I know that you have a final point uh, before we, we close. Yeah, no, I guess it, it was also linked to, to this because now we, we spoke specifically about what governments can do, can invest and think more in terms of market shaping and so on. So maybe just a final reflection, what about how governments are organized themselves? So Simone started to, to touch upon that. But if we are seeing these kind of new frontiers, let's say, uh, software enabling, enabled organizing. Uh, is that going to happen in government, you think, anytime soon? Well, in some sense, we're seeing a lot of progress, but also regression. You know, you, you, you go forward, you go back. Uh, you know, you look at the UK government digital service, which, uh, you know, kind of brought a, a kind of user-centered design to the British government. Uh, then you have a change of politicians and they get, you know, so defunded and and made less central to the project. You know, in the United States, uh, we copied that with the United States Digital Service, which surprisingly actually flourished. Uh, you know, it was started, uh, you know, during the administration of Barack Obama, but but continued to flourish uh, uh, under Donald Trump and, and is again continuing to flourish under uh, under Joe Biden. So I, I think that we have progress The thing that I probably the biggest piece of advice I would have for governments is to remember that, first off, it's not uh, technology. It's actually the focus on the user that is the thing. Uh, and this is kind of a little contradictory to what I was saying earlier about it's Well, it's the focus on, you know, the participants in the system and really understanding them. Uh, that I think drives uh, successful public policy. Uh, you know, so user-centered design and, and then also thinking through how do you actually implement what you do? And, and I think one of the things that has really gone wrong, if you look at the last probably 100 years of government, is that bills, certainly I, I'm very familiar with this in the U.S., but I think it's also true in the U.S., are way too specific. You know, the example I used to give uh, was the Highway Act of 1956, which created the, the, the interstate highway system in the United States, one of the largest public uh, you know, works projects in history. Uh, it was 29 pages long. You know, the Affordable Care Act in the U.S. trying to create, uh, you know, was something like 3,000 pages long. And, and, and that's a little bit like the board of directors of Google writing the specifications for Google's algorithms. You know, you go, wait, that, that's just wrong. You know, like, why would you have uh, a legislature that is not actually, ha has any expertise in implementation, specifying in so much detail how the thing is to be done, rather than what the thing is, what are the outcomes we're looking for, which you can make very clear. You know, when, when uh, they did that national highway system in the U.S., they didn't, you know, Congress didn't say, here's where you're going to put all the roads. They just said, we're going to build this system. And, and, 
and, and you know, go figure it out. You know, so it was a statement of, of a goal. And, and I think government has to get better at setting and measuring and modeling uh, outcomes and not sp- uh, telling people exactly what to do. And then they have to get much better at measuring whether those outcomes have been achieved. And if they haven't, making changes more quickly. You know, you don't get to say, you know, like if you are, you know, again, this is, again, this powerful lesson from tech, you know, um, you know, when, when, you know, Google uh, finds that there's a new attack on search quality or Facebook finds that there's a new attack on, uh, you know, the newsfeed algorithm, you know, they go to work fixing it right away. They don't say, well, you know, uh, we did that in the uh, algorithm update of, of, of 2016. And, you know, we can't touch that again for 10 years. Of course, you know, I remember back when I was lobbying for patent reform, you know, literally the patent commissioner saying, well, we're not going to touch this again. We just did a patent reform act uh, last year, so we won't touch this again for 10 years. You know, and you go, how crazy is that? You know, why would you not take the opportunity of of technology to keep perfecting what you do? Because that's one of the things that's really good about our our, our technologies today is you know, unlike the technologies of, you know, when you think about the PC era where you would do a version of software and you ship a new one maybe you know, years later, you know, now it's continually updated. And we have the capabilities to have these systems that are learning, that are perfecting, that are taking in, you know, new signals from, you know, the, the system that they're trying to manage. And so there's so much for government to learn from tech about how to manage, model and manage dynamic systems. And I think there's a real need for people with that expertise from the technology industry uh, to go into government and to help uh, make that transformation so that we can take these incredible powers that we have taught ourselves in tech and apply them to the, the world's hardest problems. So I guess I would say in one sense, I, my, my two calls are for technologists to regulate themselves better, i.e. to make sure that they think a lot about the value that they're creating and who they're creating it for, and not just be about, hey, how do we make as much money as possible? And then for people who have the technology skills to go into government and for government to welcome them and to empower them and not, uh, as uh, one technologist said, to keep them at the kids' table when it comes to policy. Uh, but to get them deeply involved in, in thinking, how do we implement? How do we solve these hard problems? Tim, the conversation we had, to some extent, we understand that uh, there's a lot that about this changing how we organize and, and regulate and so on. It's about capabilities building. No? So it's about essentially helping both the, maybe also the civil servants that actually work in government to, to be more capable of investing there massive amount of money that, for example, now they are investing uh, across the world in the transition. But uh, as you said also in one of your pieces, you say climate response is uh, both capital intensive and inherently local. And so also these capabilities will need to be built on the local context. And so I think uh, your work is going really in the right direction as you try to, let's say, uh, mix uh, your experience in building these communities of practice and this uh, and this way to connect the, the people that are actually doing the work uh, with uh, also the, the, the regulation uh, context, the, the political, the, go- the government context. Uh, and so I really, I really think this is a sweet spot where, as you said, we need to improve. Uh, before we close, anything that you want to add that uh, maybe about something new you're working on and people that can be stay tuned? You know, a lot of it, uh, as I said, I am thinking a lot about uh, algorithms and economics and what we can learn from technology companies. Uh, I, I think you made uh, reference to the way that the software industry is is becoming at the heart of everything. Perhaps we could uh, paraphrase Mark Andreessen and rather than saying software is eating the world, let's say software is infusing the world. And... Uh, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to figure out is how software can infuse the world in a way that is healthy, 
uh, rather than simply consuming it. <laughs> and one of the big pieces that uh, uh, you know I, I'm wrestling with in economics is the, the theory of rents, a, a pretty central focus for uh, Mariana Mazzucato's group. Right now, you know, we tend to think in terms of labor and capital, but the traditional, you know, the historical economists used to think a lot more about rents. That is the ability of people to get uh, unearned income of various kinds and how that happens in our economy is really the secret to understanding inequality and many other problems because, um, you know, rents are effectively a tax. Uh, As Mariana likes to say, uh, you know, when Adam Smith talked about the free market, he didn't actually mean the market free of government interference. He meant the market free of rents, that is, of, of asymmetries of power that kept the market from operating uh, properly. And uh, uh, he actually saw government as, as a, a factor that could actually make the market freer rather than less free. Of course, government has to do right, just like Google and Facebook and Amazon have to do right. You know, you have this enormous algorithmic power, uh, use it uh, to make the market freer, uh, not to make it subject to you. And and I think a lot of what I'm doing is, is activism around both understanding that, evangelizing some of the lessons of tech, uh, probably more these days to economists than to uh, government per se. My wife, Jen Palka, who was the founder of Code for America and United States Digital Response, now writing a book about uh, how to improve government, is much more focused on on the government side of this per se. So I, I guess I would just say there's so much opportunity for us to take these powers that we have developed over the last decades of the technology industry and use it to solve new and important problems. Uh, there's a real urgency uh, to so many of the challenges that face our world. And all of you who are out there building the future, ask yourself, how do we make it a better one? And uh, surely, I mean, they're going to build on your work, uh, team. I think it's really important to honor the work that uh, your company and yourself you have been doing for these uh, movements around the open collaborative uh, communities and uh, it's really uh, it's really important for I think all the work that we are that we are doing so again thanks so much for spending this uh, almost one hour together with us I'm sure our listeners uh, will write tons of notes so again thank you so much Tim uh, you're very welcome Stina I'm sorry that Simone and I got on uh, such a run that and I gave such long answers that uh, I, we didn't talk as much as I would have uh, liked so perhaps we can do another uh, podcast <laughs> thank you and I am very happy to uh, with the answers that I that I got and uh, very inspired by your work and I think this is something that also attracted me to boundaryless um, this ideology of open source and and really trying to create more value than you capture so Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm trying to get Sina to become the main host next year. So so I'm, I'm sure yeah, you're really right on that. So thanks so much again, team, and to the others, to the listeners, catch up soon. Okay, great. That was uh, the final episode of this season. The grand finale couldn't have been a better guest for that. I think looking back at, at all the, the episodes that we had in this season, it's really interesting to see that we had quite a lot of diversity in, in terms of the topics, in terms of the guests and so on. And quite a lot of them still managed to somehow relate a little bit to policy, to regulation and, and these new kind of models that are emerging in society. But of course, Tim and also if we look back to episode seven, when we had Robin Scott, that was also a nice episode to look into more deeply, like what governments are doing and how they are adapting to, let's say, the platform uh, economy and, and and the new competences that are required in in this shift. Yeah, I mean, Robin was really, the, the conversation we had with Robin was really into the role of the civil servant, you know, and how these civil servants are unlocking new types of value by just sharing best practices, for example. And it was really interesting in complement to to talk to Sanjit Chudari and Simon Wardley, episode number one and episode number 11, that besides, you know, being extremely insightful as uh, episodes uh, on their own, they managed to touch upon the topic of geopolitics, not, not just policies in terms of, you know, regulation and more general topic of how do you regulate platforms and ecosystems, but more into, you know, the intentional way that 
governments are, are using to interact with their technological sector. And we we figured out, for example, that internet now is really a regional question. No? It's not uh, more just a global thing. It's really about how governments relate with that. And, and I think uh, also Rita McGrath, uh, uh, was uh, uh, very helpful in in exploring this where we had our conversation. She was really great in helping us to figure out this uh, inflection point that uh, not only companies are facing, uh, but also policymakers to some extent. You know, and and I think we arrived to co- comment uh, like uh, you know to comment how. Now it's increasingly more important to develop a a kind of a partnership between the public and the private sector to really reap the the benefits and equip our society to to face the the transition. Yeah, and I think I remember she she said that we have been kind of walking blindfolded into the space of social media and uh, how technology is really impacting society. And that made me think also about these two episodes. We had uh, episode three and four with Peter Evans and uh, Joseph Fine, the second, and Peter especially talking about this platform talent and what they are seeing in the market now uh, being highly requested. And there is there's almost a, like a kind of mismatch between what is needed uh, from companies and what individuals are available because it's a highly, rec- very all-encompassing role to cover. And you really have to have a broad range of knowledge to be able to fully work as a in the, in the platform economy, actually. And also uh, being able to provide uh, experiences. So really rethinking the way your role in in a company as a service provider, let's say. Yeah, I mean, a good compliment for the listeners would be to catch up with uh, three episodes that have been touching very deeply the topic of complexity and culture and uh, give us a more uh, nuanced understanding of what does it mean to be an organization in a complex world that is changing at, and, and it's requiring to some extent a shift in cultural approaches and in epistemic. I think uh, it was great to talk to Alicia Hennig on episode number two, uh, where she opened uh, the doors to the Chinese culture and Chinese business ethics. Uh, and more generally, we spoke about the need to embed more our business practices in our cultural context. And to some extent, also the episodes we had with Nora Bateson in episode number 13 and Day Snowden, episode number five, both of them were windows open towards the idea of complexity. And Nora helped us to understand uh, that uh, it's even hard to really frame the idea of an organization in a world that is so interconnected. And uh, on the other hand, Dave instead uh, gave us a thoughtful but still very pragmatic approach to uh, organizing for complexity. You know, I, And he spoke, for example, about this idea of uh, internal scaffolding in organizations uh, so that uh, uh, you can build an organization that is more able to uh, fit within the context, you know, within the, uh, the community, within the landscapes and within the politics of the, of the place. So I think this place aspect emerged uh, very strongly when we spoke about complexity and culture. Yeah, and I think this uh, internal scaffolding that Dave was talking about and, and how systems also have to act within constraints uh, that links quite nicely to this transition topic that we touched upon with many guests, but specifically in episode 14 with Ralph Thurm and Bill Bowie from R3.0. And they are really looking into this, what does it mean to organize within the constraints that are posed by uh, the risk landscape that we are facing with multiple environmental and, and social risks as well, that really that really put some, some kind of parameters that organizations have to uh, navigate in order to be able to carry out their business. Yeah, 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 and it was great to to see three different approaches. I think to changing the nature of our organizing in a world in transition, and uh, I can recall for sure uh, Greg Landua discussion conversation we had on episode number seventeen where we explored how region network, for example, is using the blockchain to mobilize a multi-sided ecosystem around uh, regenerating soil and and, uh, absorbing CO2. 
it was great to talk to Archna Haylock and Steve Helvey about how Open Compute Project, and that was episode number 15, Open Compute Project has created a shared governance ecosystem around uh, uh, making greener IT, so having... Uh, cloud computing that is much more circular, much more sustainable. And uh, it did this, uh, interestingly, uh, by putting together the interests of so many players that used to compete with each other and that they decided to deliberately collaborate, let's say. And finally, uh, I would say also interesting to talk about a recent episode we had with Nathan Schneider, where we spoke about uh, more like a, a perspective of collaboration between the platform and its owners. So essentially with the idea of overcoming this uh, pattern of exploitation that uh, sometimes uh, comes up when we have especially platforms that uh, provide commoditized services. So, you know, uh, we spoke about exit to community and we spoke about platform cops more in general. And it's really, I would say, also a hint towards the future of work, you know, that that can really uh, mean that uh, you're not just an employee anymore. You can be an owner, you can be a co-owner, an entrepreneur, you can be much more for the organization you're part of. Yeah, I think this, I really enjoyed that we brought uh, Albert Canigeral and Leticia Vito to the show in episode nine and really going into uh, what it means, uh, you know, the, the the platform economy, what it means for uh, for the future of work and what it means for work in general. So we have uh, this multiplicity of of works throughout our lives nowadays. And that's very clear. Uh, and I like how they bring this positive aspect of, uh, you know, empowerment and, and thinking, being in charge of your own task, let's say. And that's something uh, that we can, can strive for. And and also Aaron uh, Dignan and what they are doing in the Ready is really to have this internal, let's say, system of, of teams who work but have a lot of autonomy uh, in order to set their own their own pace, their own ways of working and so on. So that was very inspiring. Yeah, and Aaron also joined our podcast just a week before, a couple of weeks before uh, announcing his uh, Murmur project that uh, it's inter- super interesting because it starts to, to connect uh, with the idea that uh, software and organizing are increasingly interconnected. So this is something that we are seeing also on our side, you know, as we uh, look into common ways of organizing, what we call common protocols of organizing. You can check out our blog post recently on the topic. And um, it was interesting in general to explore uh, the topic of uh, how organizations are changing and transitioning towards these new models. And I can mention definitely the amazing conversation that I had with, uh, we had with uh, Jabe Bloom, uh, where uh, Jabe uh, helped us to understand how to transform an organization. Uh, you really need to look into the practices. You, you cannot just do that by thinking about new models and thinking that these new models can be imposed. You really need to create tools so that people can make sense of the new possibilities and impl- and essentially be the organization, you know, build the part of the uh, organization as uh, they are provided with new tools. And also, uh, I think it was super interesting to, to talk to Sasha Keller, Rob Solomon and, and Brian Peters in episode number 18, where we have been sharing our own struggles uh, as we starting to build a software ecosystem around the entrepreneurial ecosystem enabling organization and we decided to do it deliberately collaborating so basically by creating a strategy to mobilize an ecosystem that uh, respects all these points of view and respects all these expectations that players have in this space so without just arriving and say you know we're going to concentrate everything into our control we just want to make something that is a shared open and, and integrative and collaborative and um, yeah, I mean, of course, uh, finally, I cannot uh, avoid, uh, uh, you know, referring to the episode that we had, episode 20 that we had with Matthew Skelton, where we, su- I think we successfully connected uh, these organizational trends that, uh, uh, that see, uh, you know, organizations increasingly being unbundled into small teams, independent, uh, entrepreneurial, with uh, the effects that uh, the, the the penetration of software inside our organizations is having. Basically, we live in this 
space now where you can connect and leverage so much, so many things from the internet, you know, APIs, uh, open software, producers, um, uh, independent players. So it's a, there's a lot that you can connect and leverage uh, to create the organization of the future. And what does it mean for, for our management practices? What does it mean for our design practices? This is an open question that we are really into to explore. Yeah, and I think just to, to bring all the previous episodes to attention, we also had these great practitioners, let's say, Juho Makonen and Adrian Nussenbaum in episode six and eight, and they are really creating these amazing ecosystems where they really enable people to take advantage of uh, what is happening, right? And uh, and putting a lot of thoughts into how do they cater best for for the suppliers on, and uh, the users of of their platforms. And I think that links back very nicely also to what we talked about with Tim today, you know, the the idea of enabling more value than you capture and really not only focusing on users, but also really on who are the suppliers and providers on on your platform. Yes, I mean of course, you know, because essentially Yuho and Adrian with Miracle and with uh, and with Share Tribe, they're really trying to uh, reduce the the barriers for organizations, incumbent organizations, for example, to connect with these ecosystems, to connect with these uh, modules and components that are emerging. So, really making uh, to some extent a new new possibilities available for organizations in terms of developing in new and uh, unexpected ways that uh, maybe just a few years ago weren't uh, weren't possible. So overall, I think as as a, as a final reflection we see that our research uh, is going into new directions, uh, is going into exploring more of the interplay between software and, and organizing, is going more into exploring uh, uh, the idea of a plural approach and relationship with technology, including platforms. So I expect that uh, the next season uh, we will be talking about uh, decentralization more, we will be talking about... Uh, cooperation more, we'll be talking about uh, really out-cooperating the competition, as I as I titled a recent essay that I shared and that our listeners can, can, can see in our blog. So, I mean, it's really about understanding, I would say, how to transcend uh, the usual industrial way to think about platforms and really try to embrace a truly post-industrial way, uh, a truly empowering and enabling way to create platform organizations without, of course, uh, forgetting the context, you know, the context of a world that uh, is increasingly facing uh, existential risks, uh, is increasingly facing uh, uh, political fragmentation, uh, is increasingly facing uh, social challenges. So it's, it's really up to us. It's really about uh, organizing. And this is what we want to do. Uh, this is the mission of Boundaryless, uh, reducing uh, uh, the barriers, uh, for people to become organizers, to become designers, and to create the institutions of the future. So, uh, thank you so much for your for your time, for listening to this podcast, uh, for the messages that you sent. I know we know that there's a ton of people that are waiting our our next episode with passion and and, and uh, give us a lot of uh, support. So continue find a moment to review the podcast on our uh, preferred platform. Uh, leave a review and this helps us to be more visible and stay tuned for the next season that's most likely going to start around 6th September after the summer break. Thank you so much. Uh, Stina, do you want to say something more to our to our listeners? It's been a great season and I think personally I'm going to go back to several episodes and uh, you know listen again. We we have created a lot of content in this period and, and now is uh, you will have some time to to catch up. Under the sun of the summer, we can sit down and re-listen to the 21 episodes of this year. Catch up soon! Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. 
We also want to thank Valta Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.